This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, the RCMP is investigating a report that former Royal Canadian Air Force pilots are training fighters within China's Air Force. Richard Shamuka, defense expert and senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, helps us understand the training of pilots go through in their lives, the cost of it, and why pilots are in high demand around the world and in Canada as well. Are you okay with hiking, gender reveal parties, and more? And research says traveling to space has a profound impact on us. But will that be the case with luxury space travel? You see, looking down on Earth is an experience that everybody seems to share that they go to space, changes their mind, changes their perspective. On the World of Weird Things with Greg Fish, we explore the ethics of space tourism and what we truly get out of it. It's all on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Well, when you finish your career, you go into consulting. Isn't that what everybody does? Well, it turns out if you're part of the military, you do that too. Not sure if you can or should, whether it's legal or not legal. But there's a story from globalnews.ca RCAB investigates ex-RCAF pilots reportedly training China's Air Force. Joining us now from the West Coast, defense expert and senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, Richard Shamuka is here. Richard, hello. Hi, Shane. How's it going? Good. Welcome back to the shift, my friend. Thanks for having me. So this has been bubbling under for, I don't know, almost a year. Um, I think the BBC had reported some other countries in the past that that uh, they had said that their pilots might have been training Chinese Air Force. Um, what's your take just off the hop? New news, old news, uh, always happening. We just don't talk about it. How does this look? So when that report came out, and I think it was last October, something like that, uh, there was so, yeah. talk that there were Canadian. Yeah, I think there was talk that Canadian pilots were involved. Uh, it never got reported, as far as I remember. Uh, it never really got reported. Uh, and I think there were people that were scrambling within government to, you know, figure out the number, who they are, and all that. So to see it come out now, you know, basically 11 months later, it's a bit surprising. I would have thought that this would have been cleaned up or there would have been some sort of, um, uh, you know, effort to sort of shuffle these people out and say, look, you should be doing this. But uh, Global, Global and also the Global Mail have kind of reported there are at least three individuals that are you know training um training pilots and uh it's it's a little you know it's it's kind of embarrassing to some degree yeah i find it embarrassing i find it concerning there's all kinds of uh feelings that sort of come up in this conversation richard now okay so the original assertion was about a year ago uh, you're you're a defense expert not a political expert but in that you've seen the government respond to military issues in the past wouldn't they race to get ahead of this? You would think to say, by the way, this was reported. You know, Steve has said he'll never do it again, and we're all good now, right? I'm obviously oversimplifying for entertainment yeah. effect, but you get my point. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely. So apparently, there's, from what I've got, and I'm not exactly the legal expert in there, I can probably talk better to the operational concerns and the you know, other kinds. It, it, those there is legal hurdles with telling people you cannot work for the Chinese government. There's there's apparently nothing that kind of uh, explicitly says you cannot do it. As long as you're not uh, passing, you know, uh, military secrets of some sort or another or, you know, 
technical knowledge that could be used uh, used you know against the Canadian uh, Canada or its allies. So that you know, if you're talking about the government's sort of responsibility in this case, then yeah, there could have been an effort to maybe close some of these apparent loopholes in the law. Um, I mean, it's a bit it's a bit difficult to sort of deal with this issue because it, I mean, it's again these are once you are sort of retired from service, how do you control like? It took a BBC report, and there was a lot of British pilots. Uh, there was at least, I think it was 50 was, was the number that was identified that were training um, training uh, Chinese Air Force individuals. So, uh, you know, and we found out there might be three. So you can kind of see the sort of difference in scale here. But the fact that there was nothing that seemed to have been done, and only now we're starting to see the RCMP sort of been called in and, and sort of under investigation. Again, we don't know where this investigation is is sort of, you know, a little bit concerning because this should have been probably dealt with a lot quicker, especially that we see just how, how extensive the problem is for our, our allies and, and what's being, what was being done. Richard Shamuka is the guest here. Trade secrets, Richard, you sort of touched on it there. If you're a pilot and you're training Chinese pilots, it's not like you're there with a Cessna 172 saying, okay, pull back to go up, push forward to go down. They know how to fly airplanes. The only reason for you to go there would be to teach against this kind of plane or this scenario bank this way. That, to me, wouldn't that be a tactical secret that you maybe learned in and around uh, NATO and your other allies to be able to teach those things? Because, I mean, these guys already know how to fly. They're just getting taught tactical things. So how does the trade secret thing not apply in this case? Well, no, I would say I disagree with that because, I mean, there's multiple levels of training. There's the basic, what you've sort of talked about, the very basic kind of flight training. Then you start to build out different sections. And we broadly use three to four different sections, how you sort of count it. And you have like your basic training. Then you start moving towards where I'm going to fly sort of fast jets or, you know, big transport. So you start going towards that kind of training. And then you start going to, so the operational training, and then you have like specific conversion training to a fighter. And, and I mean, different countries have different kind of ways of doing it, but the, it's really the last three to some degree where you start seeing where you need sort of more and more expertise in order to sort of give pilots a sense. And it's really the last one, the last one and two, basically the ones that were, that's where the sensitive kind of nature of, the stuff that we don't want to show them. And then there's even an added level of that because you have certain individuals that are called subject bank experts. They may have expertise in air defense systems or how do we sort of counteract that. And then they understand the sort of the very technical side of those uh, these areas. Those are, are clearly they know that they have technical expertise that they cannot share. Uh, in, in many cases, these people actually just are retained by government and they continue to work well after their sort of flying career because they are very valuable. But for the sort of earlier sort of level, which is like basic flight training about how, you know, how do you fly and sort of basic maneuvers and stuff like that. You still need fighter pilots in general to, uh, to train that, but the sensitivity level of that kind of information training may not be nearly as, you know, it's not, it's not as sensitive and, and you could, that kind of information is, I would say, readily available, but it's not classified. It's not. Yeah. It's not necessarily something that has to be there. So, and you need a lot of these people. Like one of the big things about training fighter pilots or training sort of any military, you know, uh, individual in, in such a high level capability is that this is not cheap. It requires multiple people doing, you know, lots of sort of training, 
they use a lot of fuel and aircraft hours to sort of train and get them used to these situations. So they, it's almost mindless in the sense of how they control the aircraft. They, it's done by instinct rather than having to think about it. And you need individuals to train those kind of skills, whether it's Canadian, you know, South African, there's just companies therefore, or, you know, Russian. There's a bit of, there's a lot of commonality in those kind of areas. Whereas, as I said like earlier, the, the more sensitive areas of very specific NATO tactics or American or Canadian tactics, that's the stuff that we really have to be concerned about. So. I'm trying to think of this, um, you know, simply as well as you said, you, uh, you know, top secret, confidential information, all those kinds of things. But if somebody came up through the ranks and maybe they were a cadet and their entire flying career was built by the Royal Canadian Air Force in some fashion, I guess it would, I mean, sure, you could go get flight sim on your PC and learn how to fly an airplane. So it is readily available. It's not classified like you talked about. But at the same time, if you were trained by the Royal Canadian Air Force all the way up and now you're training another air force, isn't that even conflict of interest, even though it is simple and readily available to learn elsewhere? Doesn't that seem offside? It feels offside. Oh, I don't absolutely. have any evidence absolutely. to back it up, but it does. And I, absolutely, and I would I would 100% agree with that. And more I'm talking about this in lots is more about the specific sensitivity that we have about like classified material or you know technical knowledge certainly i think that 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 is that is a clear case and i don't purport to know what these you know three individuals in canada are you know why they did so you know but certainly the the pay scale for some of these positions are extremely lucrative um and and they can sort of say well you know they may be able to justify well if i didn't do it somebody else is going to do it and it's not like i'm training them to do i'm not giving them the sensitive information to do so and, and that could be a justification for it i'm not again i'm not saying specifically for it but i mean certainly this is what's sort of been talked about in the pilot communities is one of the big sort of issues that you can you can do quite well doing this you know for if you were to sort of uh take on these sort of positions so it's but i mean again you're basically training pilots who will now turn around and potentially use it against your own your own allies so yeah yeah i mean it's it's no there's no you know i can't really say to it i mean it's but it's a pretty sort of odious situation to some degree you must fully understand why what you're doing or what you're getting into yeah i would just like to add to what you said about you know we're not condoning anyone's behavior but at the same time trying to find loopholes and one and be curious about where does it land because you said a couple things there you said the money part and there was some of the numbers and reports that I read said $350,000. I mean, that's a lot of money, especially for someone who's retired. Now, does that is money the problem? Um, but as a pilot, especially with all that experience, not as much fun, but you can fly charter and make $300,000, $350,000 or more a year um, if you wanted to work as a, you know, as a bus driver of the sky, as a retired military pilot assuming you can still be certified to fly because some people maybe can't but you know i mean so even though the pensions may be a problem um you know th there are other ways to make money well absolutely no absolutely i yeah. I, I absolutely know sort of uh disagree with that i mean yeah. because of the nature of that we fly a twin engine fighter and he allows you to get a uh, multi-engine ticket to fly you know, uh, what do you call it, uh, you know, Airbuses or Boeing aircraft. And, and it's just all with the West Coast strike. These are individuals that are actually quite well sort of compensated. And, you know, it is compet uh, competitive. Again, that's the starting rate, what we've heard. I've heard other numbers that are higher. And, and I mean, it's, yeah. there's a greater dearth of people who are willing to do this. I mean, China's are certainly uh, wanting, you know, more and willing to pay more. I, again, 
fighter pilots are very, it's a very specific trade. And it's not just, you you're saying, you know, sitting in a PC and flying it. A lot of this has to be done under extreme sort of conditions where you're pulling G's, you're doing this, like, again, instinctively when you're under stress and in the combat condition. And there's very few people can, who can do this. So that skill set requires a lot of, you know, specialized training understanding to undertake. And, and that's why they're actually highly in demand. So, yeah, I saw the 300,000, but... I've heard that there's actually higher in a lot of cases, and as a result, they're desperate to get people, and they want to get that knowledge, even not even the very, you know, the highly classified technical stuff, but just the the basic training aspect. Those those things are not really readily available, and as a result, they're willing to pay for it. What's the conversation you're hearing inside the military community about this, Richard? Um, I realize I'm asking you to sort of speculate a little bit from things you've heard, but I feel like it's okay to maybe set the tone. Uh, people feeling like you've gone to the dark side you you know uh, training the enemy uh, all kinds of things or is this perfectly widely accepted if people say well yeah i'd do it too i mean take the money have a nice day i mean what what are you hearing inside just anecdotes from people about the topic of canadian air force pilots that are retired training china's air force you can definitely get a bit of a spectrum but i would say the vast majority are pretty they're pretty Oh, disgust is maybe not the word, but they see this as offside. You don't do this. Like, why? Yeah. Why would you, you know, like, it, it, to your point, like, if you really want to make money, go, you know, go fly for Air Canada it's usually, or WestJet, right? Uh, so I, I get a lot of, that's not right. Like, don't do this, right? Uh, but other ones do acknowledge, well, the money is good. I mean, you can't, they, they can see justification for it, even if they don't agree with it, if that makes yeah. sense. So yeah, I, I, I sense. get the sense, I get the sense, of, especially a lot of the fighter pilots, because the fighter pilot community in Canada is actually quite small. I mean, at any, in earlier years, there's more, but at any one time, there's maybe 200 or so people who are kind of rotating in or out, right? And and yeah. so they all know, they know who these people are, and they, they can kind of see the motives they know the P personnel, why they're doing it or not, maybe not why they're doing it, but they can see based on what they know of it and why they're doing it. So it, in a lot of cases, I don't want to sort of get into that part of it, but certainly the, the broader view is like, let's not do this. this you don't want yeah. to help China. We we're actively working here to stop this. Why would we give them any aid in any other side of it? Even if the money is that good. So, yeah, it's uh, and I like as an everyday Canadian, I, it feels very unsettling to me when we, sit here and we, you know, we go after the government for their handling of foreign interference and all the various things going on. And then at the same time, um, there's, you know, people that are helping them for money. And that seems weird. Even in today's paid military world of of things, it still seems incredibly weird that, that anybody would go do that. And that's just my look as an everyday Canadian uh, to see that. But at the same time, you know, we were sharing earlier, maybe the good news here is that it goes to show how incredibly talented and well-trained our pilots are. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, this is one of the, if you think about all the military professions, other than let's say medical positions, um, this is probably the most difficult to train for. It's, this could cost upwards of $5 million per person just to train, right? Because of all the hours they have to go through the you know, training of, uh, you know, learning from basic flight all the way to, as I say, operational conversion, which is where you start to fly the CS-18 or soon to be the F-35, right? It's a, it's a extremely expensive sort of proposition because it's so technical and so long. You know, this is it's something that almost takes a decade to undertake. Right? So to get to this professional level, 
is you, you kind of reach a plateau where you kind of get to that point and, and it's, it, it, it's demanding. It's, it's, you know, point of pride. You talk to a lot of these pilots who do this and for a lot of them, they, they, they see when they were from a child, they want to do this, right? They want to do, you know, they went through all the hoops, they got great grades, they, they pushed forward. So certainly I think that is one of the aspects of it. And this is why it's, it's been really difficult because we don't actually have enough of these individual supplies that probably the, uh, certainly our aircraft are old, uh, they need to be replaced, but the pilots themselves are just as important. And the maintainers, so that's our side of it, it's the people who actually maintain the aircraft as well. All of these people are, are required to make this work and be effective capability and and we're we're generally regarded as being very very good at this level so i mean to keep them keep individuals high trained motivated is pretty critical for maintaining the proper defense of our country richard chamuka is here with on this on the shift he's a defense expert and senior fellow at mcdonald laurier institute i think you touched on something there uh, i can only think of you know, you were talking about all the people that have made it and how much it costs to become, you know, a jet pilot, CF-18 or whatever. But think of all the people that didn't make it, right, that they got sent over to fly cargo, you know, and all that stuff, but they wanted to be a fighter pilot. And they didn't make it. I, I can only speculate that they, uh, those pilots might be choked at the notion that, um, that some of those pilots that did make it are off training somebody else after all that. But you did touch on one thing about our planes being old. And when we chatted last time, we had talked about new planes coming in and how that could bring in a whole new generation of young people wanting to fly new planes, new excitement being ignited inside aviation and the military inside Canada. Do you see any of that playing into this at all, the opportunity to work with different technologies, ours being old uh, or maybe new stuff coming and a change of the guard in, in the world inside your military analysis of this? Certainly. So I'll give you a very kind of a good anecdote. But yeah, generally people thought, if you look historically to some degree, a lot of people went in thinking they'd fly fast jets. And, you know, they went to transport for whatever or, you know, or helicopters. I mean, there's a lot, there's actually a lot of people who want to fly certain different things. A lot of people want to be search and rescue helicopter pilots, right? Because it's actually a pretty, you get a lot of flying time. You fly a lot as a transport pilot. It's actually one of the most, like, heavily used area uh, of the Canadian Armed Forces. So but recently, just because of the age of the CF-18 and and the inability for the Canadian government to replace the CF-18, which is by the time it retires, will hit 50 years of age, uh, a lot of pilots basically said, or sorry, pilot trainees said, you know what, I actually don't want to fly the fighter uh, fast jets because I will be stuck with the CF-18 where this aircraft is old. And you saw actually people go and pick transport as being their primary area of you know where they wanted to be uh assigned to because they didn't want to get stuck with this old aircraft so i mean which is not a which is a pretty sad sort of state of affairs for the canal forces because the transport fleet is relatively new right we the c-130j's and the uh c-17 were bought about 15 years ago right uh which is not that old in terms of for some military capabilities so uh, i mean that's that was a real concern. Now you kind of see the light coming, but we're still quite a ways away from replacing the aircraft. We're, we're going to cut down the number of CF-18s. So we're just we're also going to reduce the amount of sort of foreign deployments. So going over to we're never we're not going to do an operations in uh, Romania or in um, there's these missions that are done in uh, in the Baltic and in Iceland to sort of defend those countries because they can't they're too small to have an air force and we have there's regular Allied deployments there. We're not doing those anymore. We're just basically only going in North America to defend uh, in NORAD, 
with the CFNE because we just, I think we only have 37 uh, by the end of 2025 or so. So, which is a very small force. And it's only designed to sort of maintain our NORAD defense requirements as we sort of move towards transitioning to, uh, to the F-35 because that's, that aircraft will start coming around that time. You're just going to start to do new pilots. The pipeline will be created for them to train them. And then they'll basically be uh, shuffled on to the, the 88 that Ken is planning to buy. So this will take many years. And I think uh, pilots are finally starting to see the sort of light at the end of this kind of tunnel. So there is a bit of excitement, but we're still quite a ways from there. Because from the looks of it, we don't actually have enough pilots. So the government had said that they were going to replace or they're going to um, be finish the, the sort of replacement of the CF-18 somewhere around, I think, 2032 or 2031. And it's unlikely we'll hit that target just because there isn't enough pilots right now in the system in order to transition to that aircraft effectively and man the 88 that we have uh, on order. Well, it is a, it's an amazing look at all the things. I think it was evident with that um, unidentified uh, aerial um thing that flew over Yukon that Canadian jets say they responded to the memo just came out but then American jets were just more available and got there sooner so I mean like we've seen the limitations be uh, sort of stretched of late and there's so much to be more to be had by this unsettled is where I'll leave my perspective on it Richard Shamuka thank you so much for being here and sharing um, your insights on this particular conversation about the RCMP investigating ex-RCIF pilots teaching China's Air Force thank you sir it's great to hear from you Yeah, thanks. Totally my pleasure. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you are you are you okay? Okay. Okay. Are you okay with Share your thoughts on these stories that make you ponder. Ryan O'Donnell is in downtown Calgary. John O'Chung is in downtown Vancouver. I'm Shane Hewitt in the city of Airdrie. Are you okay with hikes? Ugh, interest hikes. Mm, I'm not a big hiker. I got to be honest. I've done a couple and they're... There's nothing like they're cool. It's fun to go up a mountain or go on a trail and find this like amazing spot with this amazing view. The issue for me is that, yeah, you get to your destination, but then you have to get home again. And so that's the cool part. No, that's the worst part. I when I went and hiked in Banff. We hike up this mountain, amazing view, and I'm like, okay, great. And then you have to walk down the mountain, except when you're walking down, you you accidentally start running down because it's steep, and then you slip on the gravel, and Laura hurt their wrist going down the mountain because Cora, the dog, pulled her. So, like, it's mm. just, I don't know. For me, hiking, uh, if somebody invites me, maybe 50-50, maybe closer to 30-70 chance I'll go. Ryan, you got to think about what's happening when you're hiking up and down. When you hike up, what's happening? Works the booty. When you go down, works the quads. Making you look good. I don't need that much work down there, I got to tell you. I'm pretty proud of what I got. Okay. Well, weird. Yep. All right. BC is a great place to moving on. But Greasy, BC is a great place to take a hike. Just not really right now. I mean, you can hike there. You just can't see anything because of the smoke. And then there's rock slides. 
Following a rock slide near Summerland and the ongoing closure of Highway 97, many people have had to find alternate routes or ways around the slide. One Penticton, re- Penticton resident had a particularly long journey home. He walked from Kelowna to Penticton because he couldn't drive a 12-hour walk. That's kind of like walking from Hamilton to Toronto, by the way. Not many people can say they've walked over 10 hours to get to work. I did what I had to do. Love the people here, and I love my job. So. Last Monday, though, Matthew McDonald made a routine trip to Kelowna by bus to visit his grandchildren. Highway 97 was closed later that day following a rock slide, which meant McDonald couldn't take the bus home. So instead, he set out on foot back to Penticton from Kelowna. And I was struggling to find a way to get back home. Couldn't, I was calling BC Transit to see how to get back home, and they had no options for me, just to wait a couple days, but I couldn't. I, I have my job, I have a place that I love being at, and I just decided, like lunchtime, just to start walking. The head groundskeeper is one of the longest employed employees at the Penticton Lakeside Resort and says he didn't want to miss more than a day of work. It was a last resort. I, I can't miss work. I, I love the company. I love the people here. And yeah, I missed one day. I'm not going to miss two in a row. So. McDonald was in high spirits despite making the entire journey in flip-flops and running into a few hurdles along the way. I went slow. I went very quite slow. It took me around nine hours. But I was just taking my time. I love the Okanagan. 12 hours. That seems like an incredibly long walk, but he loves his place. Could you walk for 12 hours, Ryan, there? Or is your your Uh, booty good enough? You don't need that either. I I have done a 12-hour full day on no standing or like no sitting. Like when I saw Metallica in Quebec City, that was like full festival day. And then a two-hour walk from the festival grounds back to the hotel because an Uber was like 200 bucks. Uh, but I had proper shoes, not flippy flops. So I also, I'll be honest, I don't think I'd work 12 hours. I didn't, I don't think I'd walk 12 hours to get to work. I don't think I would do that. I think I'd probably have a good enough excuse to call in and say, Hey, sorry, rock slide. What you going to (laughs) do? Gravity. According to the general manager, there are plans in the works, um, to buy McDonald a new pair of running shoes. When he asked McDonald if he would ever make the journey again on foot, he had this to say, Oh, heck no. What the hell? Uh, meanwhile, there is still no timeline as to when Highway 97 is going to reopen, but for now, travelers are being asked to use neighboring highways or forest service roads to get around. Or walk. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a long, that's a long go, man. It's been like, think about that for a second, though, for the folks in, in West Kelowna. I mean, there was fires and now there's been all kinds of smoke. And by the way, there's now a, there was a rock slide too, and you can't go anywhere. <laughs> that's know. not good. No, no. Um, that's a bad. That's a bad. A couple weeks. Okay, this next one. Um, let's take this uh, next. Are you okay with story completely out of context? I would build a great wall, China. Whoa, doubling up. Um, are you okay with uh, the Great Wall of China? I've been there. It's quite impressive. Neither have I. I'd love to see it. It's a pretty incredible piece of of engineering, especially its history, because it's it wasn't just built like 
over the course of like 10 or 50 years. It was built over the course of thousands, thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And it's was also kind of useless in the, in the grand scheme of things. But it is a pretty spectacular feat of engineering that I would, uh, if I ever went to China, that would probably be the number one thing I would want to see. Hmm. Yeah, huge and amazing in history. Holy cow, right? No. Uh, it's visible from space, the biggest structure in human history. Got a little bit smaller, though, thanks to some very questionable decisions. Two construction workers have been detained for damaging part of China's Great Wall. Police say a 38-year-old man and a 55-year-old woman dug a gap in the wall so their excavator could pass through the ancient structure. And this caused irreversible damage to that portion of the wall. The incident is under investigation. It's also caused irreversible damage to their freedom. Uh, That from ABC News. By the way, the section of the ancient site that was damaged is uh, near Ming Dynasty Beacon Tower that is relatively well-preserved. Though police worry that the excavation will threaten the wall's integrity, the damage occurred in a stretch of the Great Wall called the 32nd Great Wall. The Great Wall spans over 20,000 kilometers and was designed as a or designated as a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1987. While more famous parts of the wall are beautifully constructed and well-maintained, other parts of the structure are in disrepair. A BBC report uh, said a 2016 article from the Beijing Times also suggested that over 30% of the Great Wall built during the Ming Dynasty has been destroyed. Uh, it is kind of funny. I mean, they did use an excavator to get through. They literally so. removed a chunk of the Great Wall of China. I don't understand how you, like, it's up there with the pyramids as the most like treasured and infamous pieces of human engineering feats Mm -hmm. of humanity in history. And you think, "Mm, I don't want to drive the whole way around the wall. So I'm just going to blow a hole through it. A guy in the story just before walked from Kelowna to Penticton for work. And these guys would rather blow a hole through the great wall of China then just go around it. Well, it's quite a trip to get around it, though. Probably take a lifetime, a lot more than 12 hours. Oh, yeah, maybe. Anyway, it's just stupid. Stupid. Over it now, uh, that that might have been an option. Just saying. Yeah, it wasn't even that tall. The part of the wall, it wasn't even that big. Uh, There you go. I'm Shane Hewitt. That's Ryan O'Donnell. Are you okay with... Gender reveals. Oh, we've done these so many times, and just it—it it never gets easier. They're always um, no. something terrible. Always something so, so stupid. And I just don't—I don't, don't understand. Like, I get the excitement of like learning. Is it a boy? Is it a girl? But it's the need for everybody that you know to be in on it, and the need to go over the top with it because. Nobody cares except for you two. Nobody well, really cares all that much except maybe the grandparents. And know, so I just don't understand why people go to such lengths for just pink and blue. Can I can I just say it? Can I just say it? I yes. Was, okay, okay so when you find out sure. when when you when you find out what the baby is sex um, this is why we have a problem with gender <laughs> because it's the sex of the baby that you're revealing, right? 
And um, when you find out if it is male or female, it is very cool, no matter when you find out. If you find out six months in or if you find out on the day of the birth or maybe you were late because you were golfing and you find out when you get there. It, it really, or you find out on a phone call. Like, it's really cool. It's a boy. It's a girl. Whatever. I find it incredibly weird that a generation that says, um, don't corner people into gender has a party <laughs> to celebrate gender. Well, yeah, fair. I will say that most of the, the, the real conversations about gender are people who are still quite young and not really having uh, kids. And I will say that the people that are having these conversations on gender are absolutely not having gender reveal parties. Absolutely. Well, not. but we don't know that. I mean, that's an assumption. I mean, the reality is, is that in, in social conversation, we're, the, the, we're all getting told, don't put people into some sort of gender box. Let their, let them people have their gender. And yet we still have more stories about people lighting things on fire, um, because of gender reveal parties. I just think that it's just, it, it just is a great example. You know what matters in this? You're having a baby good for you. And that's it. Like celebrate yeah. having a baby. That's really what it is. And, um, all the things, I, you know, gender reveal parties, maybe they should happen when you're 20. I don't know. It's yeah. I don't know. Anyway, uh, one social media uh, user speculated, Oh, we got to hit the thing first. Every time we yeah, bring yeah, up gender reveal parties, <laughs> something stupid happens. This one was particularly deadly. Reveal party over the weekend in Mexico turned tragic after a pilot died in a small plane crash just seconds after the big moment. The video posted online shows the plane flying over the party, releasing pink smoke as it flew over the happy couple, and the plane's left wing then appeared to buckle and fold backwards as the pilot tried to pull up, sending him towards the ground. Local authorities have confirmed that the pilot was the only person on board at the time, and he died on the way to the hospital. First responders say there were no other injuries at the scene. It's unclear what caused the malfunction. Now, they don't know. One uh, social media user speculated in the comments under the video that there was a confetti cannon that went off below the plane that might have contributed to that as well. That has not been confirmed officially. Um... One social media user noted that the partygoers seemed oblivious to the accident and kept celebrating after the plane came they down. They are. Really? It's awful. Like the plane crashes and it, the camera goes back to the couple and they're hugging and jumping. It's, it is, it, it's the mm. most awful gender reveal video I've ever seen. 2021, an eerily similar situation played out in Cancun when a reveal party ended in a plane crash. A pilot and co-pilot were killed when their plane crashed into the ocean while trailing a banner revealing the gender of the onlooking couple's baby. In 2020, a couple in California celebrating their pregnancy set off a wildfire using a smoke-generating pyrotechnic device to announce the gender of their baby. The fire scorched nearly 22,000 acres of land or 89 square kilometers, and it killed one firefighter and injured two others. There used to be a time when you gave them a pink blanket or a blue blanket, or if you didn't know what the yeah. gender was going to be, a yellow blanket, because that always worked. Yeah, I, I'm happy if we go back to that. More than happy. I encourage it. I would absolutely agree. But not to be forgotten, congratulations on your fertility. This is the Shift Podcast.
weird. It got very weird. I don't understand. Welcome to the world of weird things with Greg Fish. All right, Greg Fish, we're talking about things to collect, and uh, I figured you were collecting like keyboards or something or hard drives or something like that. Do you have anything that you keep lying around um, in in the world of collecting? Because Ryan says he doesn't collect anything, but he's got like 300 shoes or something. So amazingly, no, I'm actually kind of like a big anti-collector. And um, anytime I have stuff that I think there's a little bit too much, I try to get rid of it as much as possible. Hmm. Is it minimalism for you or is it just clutter? I think it's a little bit of both. I don't like clutter and I also don't just, I just don't like a lot of stuff. Um, it just, it stresses me out if I have a whole bunch of stuff. It's like, what, what do I do with it? Like, I, mm. I don't, I don't want to have the responsibility of having a bunch of stuff and keeping up with the collection or anything of that nature i do have the only thing that the only thing that i have is a collection is a little collection of like different buddhas that my grandfather used to keep but that's just more sentimental i'm not adding to the collection it's just yeah it's his i liked it i kept it yeah plus you know selling buddha it's really against all things buddha um yeah yeah right i don't even think you're actually supposed to have the buddha it's actually based on all things buddha i mean um, technically it's zin the chinese god of good luck that gets often because but, but anyway let's fair enough i'm I'm, I'm doing the technical thing before we even get into the segment before we even get into the, the technical uh bits and pieces okay greg fish world of weird things it's on substack now you can go to world of weird things.com of course best way to go though is to go to shiftheads.ca linking to the substack what is substack easy it's like a blog and it's all in one place. It's simple, is really. It's nice and simple, and it's articles and stories. Journalists use it. Writers use it. Greg Fish with the World of Weird Things uses it to put all of these stories on there. The headline this week is the uns... Oh, and it's a newsletter, so you can even sign up and get it mailed to you in advance and know what we're talking about here on The Shift. Cool. The headline is The Uncertain Return on Luxury Space Tourism. But really... Is it about that or is it about the look down when you're up there, Fish? It's honestly about both. So space tourism companies have been, one of the things they've pitched, they obviously pitched to the wealthy adventurers, hey, you've done everything on Earth. How about explore the final frontier? But the other line that they're pitching is you will understand more about yourself you will understand more about the earth. You will understand more about your place in the universe because then they talk about the overlook effect. And we've, we've talked about the overlook effect before. It is the phenomenon that a lot of astronauts and people who have been to space experience where they realize just how tiny and insignificant humans are in the grand scheme of things and just how fragile earth is. And all, you can't see borders from space generally. You technically, if we if we get really nitty gritty, you can kind of figure out where things are. But in general, there's not just a big line that divides things geopolitically. It all kind of looks like, hey, this this little blue green marble and it's protected by this really tiny, little, thin, fragile atmosphere. And we better take care of it because this is really the only place that we can call home for a very long period of time, especially and this is especially true when you're floating in a tiny spaceship and outside of it is a void that's hostile to your very existence and will kill you in 15 different ways at 30 seconds after you step outside. So 
this this is known as the overlook effect and there are some famous quotes by astronauts who talk about how they'd love to drag politicians out there and show them how insignificant and petty all of their little squabbles are and and how they really need to broaden their horizons so space tourism companies have been talking about how well if we actually follow through and start sending politicians and celebrities and wealthy people who control some of these industries and some of these companies that are contributing to global warming, that are contributing to climate change, they will have a change of heart. They will have this this humble experience with the universe. They'll have this humble experience with nature, which is why you should support our business model, which is why, and and for the uh, for the actual clientele, they're saying this is a life changing event. This is not another vacation. It seems like quite genius marketing in the world of hashtag blessed. Come find your salvation, find your grounding, find your connection uh, up in space so you can see the world, man. You're going to you're going to understand what's going on, man. Post it in a meme on your Instagram. I mean, it's quite genius marketing because really that's seems to me what they're appealing for is that this it's always been there. But this new surgence of finding purpose or at least excuses <laughs> to put believe on your living room wall. And actually, you're exactly right. And that's exactly what I wanted to get into here a little bit more. So as these companies are actually now flying paying customers, and this is no longer just um, this is no longer just a pipe dream. This is no longer just a discussion of, oh, yeah, we'll eventually be flying these people. And this is why you should support, you should support the business model. You know, William Shatner went up into space and he came down and one of the things that he wanted to say was, you know, hey, I was I was actually pretty, pretty sad because I looked at the world. I thought about what we're doing. I thought about the environment. I, th- I thought about the fate of humanity. And I came away with, you know, this really profound sadness for what we're doing to our planet. And he was immediately shoved aside by Blue Origin representatives. So Bezos could pop his champagne and go, woo, we did it again. Uh, because at that point, that's kind of, you know, bad marketing. So you're right. It's all about the marketing. It's all about the hashtag bless. And it's all about Oops. justifying this this commercialization of this, this great adventure. So actually, funny enough, in the very early days of World of Weird Things, I actually talked to one of the first space tourists, Charles Simone. And one of the things he talked about is he also talked about the overlook effect and how, you know, being in that, being in space and looking down on Earth had these very profound effects on him. And he had these very um, complex emotions that he wanted to discuss, that he wanted to talk about. But now, again, when these companies are actually flying, they don't want to talk about that. they're, They're very much like, okay, you've had your experience. Tell everybody that it was great. We need more people to come, so we make money. And this is where people who are looking into other space startups that are starting to pro- that are trying to promise even more luxurious experiences, like going up in a climate-controlled pod on a high-altitude balloon, so you can see the curvature of the Earth. It's not quite going into space. So space is defined as as the Kármán line. It's about sixty miles, uh, sorry, sixty kilometers above. The gr- or is it sixty miles? No, sixty kilometers above the ground, yeah, and uh, miles, kilometers. Oh, we just need. Can we just? Can we just all switch to metric? This would be so. This would be so much. As better. an American, uh, thank you. I think that right. I mean, really, you're the outlier. Let's be honest. 
Well, I mean, I was born in Ukraine. I grew up with the metric system. That's mm. I still think Not in you. the metric system. I kind of make yeah. your company, but yeah. Uh, fair, fair enough. But I, I, I gotta say though, that's one of my favorite things when I, when I go, go to Canada. I'm like, ah, yes, finally, I can use the metric. Whew, that's such a relief. <laughs> I can uh, use but... the metric. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Yep. That's what I call mm-hmm. it. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, but yes, so space is, is – it's not – there's not really like a hard line where you cross into space. It's more of just an agreed upon boundary because at that altitude, it gets – the air gets so thin, the boundary between like the space – like the vacuum of space and Earth is is basically just, just a matter of very precise definition and measurement. So the idea is once you get just above that line, you're in suborbital space. Once you get – couple hundred miles up that's orbit um and then you can go all the way up to geosynchronous orbit which is thirty-five thousand miles or so and then beyond that you can achieve escape velocity and go on to the moon and and so on and so forth but you have also just under suborbital space you do have that territory of about a hundred thousand feet or so where you can see the curvature of the earth you can be in this high altitude balloon that can fly for a significant amount of time with this very nice climate control pod. And it's kind of like this introductory step into space tourism. And some of the pods that are planned are getting kind of lavish where they're starting to have, they're thinking, oh, you know, you'll have champagne on board and maybe a little bit of caviar. Like you, you see now it's all of a sudden it's getting into this. It's no longer, you know, have this, have this adventure that brings you closer with the universe like we were talking about like it's it's no longer even justifying that it's now you know you're used to all the finest luxuries on earth bring them with you into space and admire what you've conquered it's it's interesting when you say it that way you said it in a way that you know space is the final frontier right it's not about getting to space as much as it is is getting high enough to look at earth a little bit right like that's interesting to to take because that's, you know, I guess it's the opposite, really. We've always thought of a space as the final frontier. Let's go to space. But is it really about let's go to space, let's go down, let's go look down is completely different. I think that's quite interesting. Yeah, and, and that's really, the, that, that's really the, the, the big change now in the actual messaging, in the actual literature that they're putting out. And what that makes me think of is it makes me think of what happened to Everest, where you had adventurers summit Everest, because that was the challenge they wanted to they wanted to prove to themselves that they could tough out what nature could give that they could make it to quote unquote the top of the world yes of course they had help and we can talk about all of the all of the problematic things um that we can that were involved in some of these ascents but ultimately you could say it was done for the love of nature for the love of the mountains for the love of the sport of survivalism and alpinism but nowadays you pay enough and they basically like roll out an escalator for you up there. They almost fly you to the summit and you can say, okay, there I've summited Everest. Woohoo. It became much more of a commercial enterprise than something that, that is really supposed to connect you with the world around you. And seeing the same thing happening to space tourism, seeing the same thing that could potentially happen where you have orbital hotels that, you know, it's basically you're flying up to the four seasons instead of, you know, learning about the universe and, and really getting that, that adventure. It's, it, 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 it feels like there's a lot of just like this cheapening 
of experiences that are meant to connect you with nature for the sake of luxury, for the sake of commercialism, for the sake of profiteering. And I mean, I'm not against businesses making money off of it, but it, there is that, and, and I'm certainly not saying that the people who are taking advantage of these services, there's, we need to say something necessarily negative about them, but it, it just feels like there there need to be these spaces. There need to be these experiences that people should be able to take where the luxury and the money aren't the only considerations. The sale of a product isn't the only consideration. There has to be something beyond that. There has to be something that helps people connect with the world around them and experience a little bit of discomfort and experience um, a little bit more of that, something that, that shows them that we kind of need to stay humble as humans, um, especially when it comes to nature, when it comes to the universe around us. And, and having those experiences being dwindled around us just feels wrong. Diminish is the word that comes to mind. Have you seen the recent um, Boeing glider videos? What they've been up to? They did it a few years ago, and now they're doing it again. Have you seen that one? No, Boeing's I actually haven't. Yeah, Boeing's got a glider, and they're trying to set a record. They're trying to get to 90,000 feet with no engine. And so, which, let's be honest, don't go too high with no engine. Oops. But they, they've they reached a little over 60,000 feet so far. And they get towed, and then they ride, you know, warm air and solar winds and all the things, and they try to go higher and higher and higher. It's quite fantastic to see. Like, it's just awesome. And I find that when I was looking at it, with all of the commercialization and and even though Red Bull, when they did the space dive from so high, I mean, you see the curve of the earth and all those things that they did as a marketing stunt, that stuff's amazing. But I feel like it takes away from some of these really, truly amazing things. Like if we had seen the pictures of that glider, I believe, without all these space tourist things going on, those images from the glider are just impressive. And yet we see so many pictures now of all these space tourists and all these different things. I think it diminishes how impressive it is because it's like, oh, yeah, someone went up to space, but they don't realize, oh, by the way, they did it with no engine. Do you find that maybe that it gets it kind of taken away from the cool, awesome part of it? Yeah, I, yeah, I think it definitely does. And then the other important point is that if your clientele is wealthy and they're used to giving orders and they're used to seeing themselves as leaders and and conquerors in one way or another giving them another thing to kind of gloat about conquering may not be so great it could very well that this whole idea of space tourism as being um an experience that would show your clientele how amazing earth is how amazing the universe is and turning it into yet another luxury vacation or luxury experience or tour for them can very much backfire because one of the important things, one of the big things that happens is it's scientifically proven that if you have people who get very, very wealthy and very, very powerful, empathy kind of tends to go out the window because they have less and less exposure to people who are not in the same socioeconomic circumstances. Um, they're surrounded by a lot of yes people who want to get on their good side. They don't hear the word no very often. It tends to, it's not good generally for people. And it's, 
And it's good to have gra these grounding experiences. So the more of these grounding experiences you remove, the less you show them, hey, this is this is what experts and people who may be working for you one day can actually do. And these are some of the things you can do with them that are just that are beyond just what's ne what the next quarterly goal is. It it's not it's contributing to a lot of bad things that we see in terms of the psychology of the people who basically more or less run the world. Um, so well, that's an, that's another that's another aspect that we shouldn't lose. Yeah, and I, I there's a there's always this threat of jealousy that starts to present itself there, right? So I'm super cautious. We saw it with the Titanic sub. There was a large portion of people could have given a darn that people died in the storyline of, you know, billionaires getting what they deserved notion that was spread about, right? So, I mean, we see that. And there's a text message actually that arrived here, Greg, while you were speaking to that um, from Jasper that says, just like Everest or ayahuasca tourism, rich people ruin everything. Um, I don't think that's fair to say rich people ruin everything. I think that um, not rich people ruin their own set of things and rich people ruin things that we strive for or wish we could do. Um, so, right. So I, so I was born in a country where people have decided, okay, no more rich people. Everyone's going to be middle class. And I will tell you, spoiler alert, it did not work out well, like at all, like yeah. at all. It's, it's <laughs> evidently. It, it, yeah. It, I, I would very, still not working you know, out actually zero. Yeah. Zero out of 10 would not recommend if I could go negative, I would, uh, so it's not so much, I would say that it's not so much a knock necessarily on rich people. It's how we treat rich people, how we interact with rich people, what societies let rich people get away with. Because after all, they are people. They have more means than the, than the usual person. They have more opportunities than the usual person. They have more power than the usual person. Uh, but if you have an entire industry of people who basically will wait on them hand and foot, it will give them a lot of very skewed ideas and they can get very radical. So for example, with Elon Musk, he's on a podcast telling, some, telling everybody how he wants to colonize Mars. And then he goes, yeah, a lot of people will die in the process, but you know, yeah, that's, that's, that's exploration for you. Like that's, no, that that's bad because when people are going to die in space, trying to colonize other planets, it, they're going to die a pretty horrible death. Like, it's not mm -hmm. going to be just, hey, yeah, the, the lack crashes. of empathy kicks in so quick, right? Um, yep. Yeah, I hear that when you give that example. Absolutely. You know, but to, to the point that they're bored too. And while we may be bored watching Dancing with the Stars and uh, gossiping about our neighbors, uh, they're bored too, and they're just going to space because they can spend the money to do it. I, I don't think we're a whole lot different in that. And so to be able to, to be able to, um, you know, judge them, it's only because they're taking away the things that we think are fantastical that 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 we judge them for it um, equally as guilty, perhaps in our own way. But there's no doubt a pattern, fish. And the article is great. It's worth the read. It's at shiftheads.ca. You can subscribe to his newsletter as well and get the emails from Fishy right in your mailbox. You can read this one and so much more. Greg Fish, World of Weird Things. Thanks for being here, brother. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 